Hey, today on Categorical Imperative, we are finally doing the part two in my series that I've been calling Heart of the Constitution. Uh, this is part two of that series. This is called the Bill of Rights as a Term of Art. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockheed and Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you are new to the show, I especially want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events in law, politics, and culture. And just real quick, if you guys dig what I do here and you want to help play an active role in helping me to develop the channel, and to reach more people, and to have a richer discussion about law and philosophy, I would greatly appreciate your help, especially over on my brand new Patreon page, where for just as little as two bucks a month, you can get all kinds of extra goodies from a show notes page to a guaranteed topic request, and much, much more. So look, if you are able and willing uh, to help me with that, I would be very grateful for your support. If you aren't in a place to do that right now, that's all right. I appreciate you coming by and spending some of your time with me all the same, whether you are a brand new viewer or a longtime subscriber. So now that I'm done whoring myself out, let's get to the topic for today. And I have got a lot to get through. This is going to be a long episode, but this is going to be one of the best episodes of the show I've ever done. And I, I really, I, I, I don't talk up the show like that a lot, but this is really, really one of the most important and the most interesting shows I have ever done. I promise you, this is going to be really good. All right? All right, let's get to it. So you should go back and watch the part one from the series, Heart of the Constitution, Bill of Rights is a Term of Art. Uh, I put this out last, last December, actually, for Bill of Rights Day, and I got really sidetracked and I never put out part two. Um, And so... Yeah, and so anyways, I'm just getting around to it now, so you're probably not familiar with this, so you should probably go back and watch the first part. I will put a link to that up in the right-hand corner of this video right about now. But just in case you don't want to go back and watch that all right now, let me quick, quickly touch, you, uh, touch on the key points from the video. Now, the first part of the video was talking about how, first and foremost, until the 1930s, you find relatively little evidence that Americans ever considered the first 10 amendments to the Constitution as a Bill of Rights. They didn't consider it the Bill of Rights for sure, and certainly not a Bill of Rights either. Now, while James Madison had spent the last uh, 40 years of his life from the time of the 1787 Constitution often talking about his justifiable pride in his role in crafting our Constitution, he never said a thing about the first Ten Amendments, and he never referred to these as the Bill of Rights because, as I posit in the last video, and I think I give very good evidence for, it is reasonable to conclude that James Madison, the man who wrote those amendments, did not see those amendments uh, as a Bill of Rights. Now, that... There were a number of other documents or parts of documents that we can find uh, where people in the 18th and 19th century pointed to and referred to as an American Bill of Rights. 
Some of them was the Declaration of Independence. For others, it was the 1774 Declaration of Rights of the Continental Association, drafted by the First Continental Congress. For others, it was Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution. And for others still, it was the Virginia Declaration of Rights. Or many people just turned to their state bills of rights and called that the, the Bill of Rights for them. Now, while the founding era saw a Bill of Rights as a tool of protecting states' rights, uh, the first and largely unsuccessful push we see to make the first 10 amendments into the Bill of Rights actually came around during the Reconstruction period from people like John Bingham, who used the term uh, to create a more expansive role for greater federal powers since he claimed using those amendments as a Bill of Rights made the amendments an exception to states' rights, which is interesting because, as I just said, most people considered a Bill of Rights from the founding era, they considered a Bill of Rights as a protector of states' rights. And so what we see in the Reconstruction era from John Bingham is that the Bill of Rights are being called an uh, exception to states' rights, which is very odd. Now, we've gone all the way through uh, the 19th century in the first episode, and we are up to uh, the pretty much the New Deal era. And this is the first place you really see uh, people talking about these Ten Amendments as the Bill of Rights, is it comes around from this New Deal era. And so that is where we are picking up today. So we are going to be starting here. This is part three in the overall in the series, and this is how Roosevelt sold our liberties by manipulating meaning. Now, this part will examine how the Bill of Rights became essential to constitutional discourse during the 1930s and the 1940s in the name of even more federal power. And the seminal figure in this transformation was none other than President Roosevelt himself, who discussed the Bill of Rights in many high-profile speeches he gave from 1934 to 1944. And in these statements, the president was responding to concerns about the validity of the New Deal as being uh, as and talking about the Bill of Rights as something that was under threat uh, from the Third Reich, Third Reich, excuse me, from Hitler, essentially. Now, when the sesquicentennial of Ratification Day came around in December 15, 1941, this was the very first ever National Bill of Rights Day. And this was celebrated. Uh, with FDR delivering a radio address uh, that made the text the centerpiece of the fight against Hitler. And later, in the midst of the war, the president uh, again called on the Bill of Rights to explain how a bright future would come only after another round of federal action to create more economic entitlement. So this is... Uh, Section 3, Part 1, The Master Politician. So in June 1934, Franklin Delano Roosevelt took to the airwaves and used the Bill of Rights to respond to criticism of the New Deal. After touting his administration's early successes, Roosevelt went on to say that plausible self-seekers and theoretical diehards will tell you of the loss of individual liberty that Americans are facing as a result of my new programs. But answer this question, he asked. Out of the facts of your own life, have you lost any of your rights 
or liberties or constitutional freedom of action and choice. Now, Roosevelt then defined those rights as the Bill of Rights of the Constitution, and this is a quote from him, quote, which I have solemnly sworn to maintain and under which your rights and freedoms rest secure, end quote. He then goes on to say, though, uh, again, quote, read each provision of that Bill of Rights and ask yourself whether you have personally suffered the impairment of a single jot of those great assurances. I have no question in my mind as to what your answer will be, end quote. Now, his fireside chats contained really the most visible presidential reference to the Bill of Rights that we had seen from anyone in decades. But the more important point was how FDR was using the Bill of Rights. As, with, as we saw in the first part with both the incorporation doctrine and with the push for nationalist colonialism in the turn of the 20th century, the Bill of Rights was again being summoned up as a means to legitimate greater federal power. Roosevelt was implying that any federal action which complied with the provisions found in uh, the first 10 amendments, as long as he complied with those, that nothing he did was a problem for freedom, which was a direct challenge to the basic, the most basic doctrine of our limited government, which is a system of enumerated powers and federalism that were also supposed to be the guardians of liberty. Now, this rhetorical move could only work, however, if people believe that the Bill of Rights was somehow set apart from the rest of the Constitution. So FDR's next meditation on the Bill of Rights and the role of the federal government came about in 1937 during a Constitution Day address before a large crowd at the Washington Monument. Now, the president declared victory in his fight with the Supreme Court over the legality of the New Deal. And if you're interested about what that is about, I've done a great video on that uh, called The Constitutional Revolution of 1937. It's a really fantastic video that will tell you about his struggle with the Supreme Court. That's it's, it's not a very watched episode, I will admit. I don't know, uh, but I think it's one of my better ones. And I think it's a really interesting discussion. Um, and in fact, I've actually, now that I think about it, I've written an article, too, about the Constitutional Revolution in 1937. So down in the description, I will include a link to both uh, the episode of the show where I talk about that. And if you kind of want a view to casually read over, I will also link to the article that I wrote. I think it was published both at the Tenth Amendment Center and with the Libertarian Institute. So I'll put all of those links for you down in the description. Constitutional Revolution of 1937. Really interesting stuff. Anyways, getting back to FDR. So this is, again, he's at the Washington Monument. He is declaring victory over his fight with the Supreme Court, over the legality of the New Deal, and the comments he made were follows. Our constitutional democratic form of government must meet the insistence of the great mass of the people that economic and social security and the standard of American living be raised. Only by succeeding in that, he said, can we assure against internal doubt as to the worthwhileness of our democracy and disparate, uh, and dissipate the illusion that the necessary pride of efficiency is dictatorship with the attendant spirit of aggression. 
FDR stated that he refused to forget that the Bill of Rights was put into the Constitution not only to protect minorities against intolerance of majorities, but to protect majorities against the enthronement of minorities. He went on to say that nothing would so surely destroy the substance of what the Bill of Rights protects than its perversion to prevent social progress, and, moreover, the surest protection of the individual and of the minorities is that fundamental tolerance and feeling for fair play with the, which the Bill of Rights assumes. Sadly, tolerance and fair play would disappear here, uh, as it has in other lands, if the great mass of people were denied confidence in their justice and security and their self-respect. So in this passage, FDR is essentially saying that support for the New Deal was the only way to save the Bill of Rights from fascism or communism. And while this reinforced his theme that the Bill of Rights was a critical part of the Constitution worth saving, the president was also connecting the spread of tyranny with the importance of the Bill of Rights. Now this flagrant violation of the rights listed in the first set of amendments by Hitler and Stalin increased their visibility, but FDR was going even further than this by implying that interpreting the Bill of Rights to prohibit federal regulation of property gave domestic demagogues the material they needed to destroy the Bill of Rights. And once again, development overseas were changing the meaning and the relevance of the Bill of Rights. And next up, the Bill of Rights goes to war. So, in 1939, uh, it was proposed uh, by the first Congress and the President, marking the occasion in a speech to a joint session of Congress that began the process for using the Bill of Rights for a new political goal that of building support for federal action to prepare for war. FDR began this part of his address by stating, There came about that tacit understanding that the Constitution would be added a Bill of Rights. Well and truly did the First Congress of the United States fulfill that first unwritten pledge and the personal guarantee thus given to our individual citizens have established, uh, we trust, for all time, what has become ingrained in our American natures as the free elective choice of the representatives itself. Now, after endorsing the myth that the Bill of Rights, as opposed to the first set of amendments that is, was written into the Constitution in 1791, the president pivoted to current events. In that Bill of Rights, he went on to say, lies another vast chasm between our representative democracy and those uh, reversions to personal rule which have characterized the recent years. The president's next claim was that the Bill of Rights was an important component of American exceptionalism uh, and that it drove the rest of his oration from there, which compared some specific provisions in the Bill of Rights with the practices in Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. One example was the right to a jury trial. Roosevelt asked whether the people of our own land ever stopped to compare that blessed right of ours 
with some processes of trial and punishment which of late have reincarnated the so-called justice of the Dark Ages. The president posed a similar question about the takings clause, wondering whether we would ever willingly abandon our security against that in the face of the events of recent years. Then he moves on to freedom of religion. He said, quote, Where democracy is snuffed out, where it is curtailed, there too the right to worship God in one's own way is circumscribed or abrogated. He went on to say, Shall we by our passiveness, by our silence, by assuming the attitude of the Levite who pulled his skirts together and passed by on the other side, lend encouragement to those who today persecute religion or deny it? The answer to that, Roosevelt said, was no. Today, he said, just as in the days of the First Congress of the United States, it was no. He ended by saying, quote, we believe in the other freedoms of the Bill of Rights, the other freedoms that are inherent in the right of free choice by free men and women, end quote. Now, FDR used the Bill of Rights to attack totalitarianism as part of his extended campaign to convince the nation to support uh, essentially a peacetime military draft, the most intrusive of all the federal acts. And in his speech, accepting the Democratic nomination for his third term as president, Roosevelt declared, quote, it is our credo, unshakable to the end, that we must live under the liberties that were first heralded by Magna Carta and placed into glorious operation through the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States, and the Bill of Rights. The government of the United States, he went on, and I quote here, for the past seven years, has had the courage openly to oppose by every peaceful means the spread of the, dicta uh, the dictator form of government. If our government should pass to other hands next January, untied hands and experienced hands, we can merely hope and pray that they will not substitute appeasements and compromises with those who seek to destroy all democracies everywhere, including here. So defending the Bill of Rights without appeasement and compromise required a draft, which was later enacted in 1940. Now, popular and official fervor for the first set of amendments reached a peak on the Bill of Rights Day in December 1941. This was the very first time that the anniversary of the ratification of the Bill of Rights itself was celebrated, and tens of millions of Americans participated in the festivities, which were endorsed by Congress and by many state and local officials. In his Bill of Rights Day proclamation, Roosevelt praised what he called the Great American Charter of Personal Liberty and Human Dignity and noted that the anniversary was especially poignant for those institutions of a democratic people which owe their existence to the guarantees of the Bill of Rights, the free schools, the free church, the labor unions, the religious and educational and civic organizations of all kinds, which, without the guarantee of the Bill of Rights, could never have existed. And one thing that's worth pointing out here is that if you consider this date, it is a very 
significant date, December 15th, 1941. What happened about a week before that? Well, it was the bombing of Pearl Harbor, as you probably know. So this is really something that he is using to ramp up his call for war. He said that uh, those who have seen the privileges lost in other continents and other countries can now appreciate their meaning to those people who enjoyed them once and no longer can. By that realization, the president concluded, we have come to a clearer conception of their worth to us and to a stronger and more unalterable determination that here in our land they shall not be lost or weakened or curtailed. Bill of Rights Day was established before the United States entered World War I, and as I mentioned before, by happenstance, this event fell just eight days after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. It was a moment of intense patriotism. In Chicago, the mayor read the Bill of Rights aloud downtown uh, on Wall Street. The governor of New York and Virginia participated in a ceremony to show sectional unity on the Bill of Rights and on the war effort. Now, that night, tens of millions of Americans listened to a radio show on the Bill of Rights entitled, We Hold These Truths. Now, this is actually a really interesting radio program. You can find this very easily if you just do a search for this uh, on YouTube, and I highly suggest you do. It's really interesting to listen to. Again, it is called We Hold These Truths. Uh, it was narrated by Jimmy Stewart, and it has a whole host of other very famous people, and they are sort of reenacting the story of uh, the creation of the Bill of Rights. And so, uh, besides the narration by Jimmy Stewart, this includes performances by Lionel Barrymore, Orson Welles, and Edward G. Robinson, to name just a few. Now, Barrymore intoned that the program was about a document that men have fought for, that men are fighting for, and that men will keep on fighting for, as long as freedom is a strong word falling sweet upon the ear. These commemorations were capped by a major presidential speech that made the Bill of Rights into a weapon against Hitler and was, in effect, our declaration of war against the Nazis. Now, during this radio program, after the uh, sort of I don't know what you would call performance or skip by those actors. We do have a speech then uh, by Roosevelt coming in, and he addresses his audience by referring to them as free Americans, and then going on to say, No date in the long history of freedom means more to liberty-loving men in all liberty-loving countries than the 15th day of December, 1791. On that day, 150 years ago, a new nation, through an elected Congress, adopt a Declaration of Human Rights, which has influenced the thinking of all mankind from one end of the world to the other. There is not a single republic of this hemisphere which has not adopted in its fundamental laws and basic principles of freedoms of man the freedom of mind enacted in the American Bill of Rights. He went on to say that there is not a country, large or small, on this continent and in the world which has not felt the influence of this document. Be it direct or indirect, indeed, 
prior to the year 1933, the essential validity of the American Bill of Rights was accepted everywhere, at least in principle. He said, even today, with the exception of Germany, Italy, and Japan, the people of the whole world, in all probability, four-fifths of them, support its principles, its teaching, and its glorious results. And after that stirring introduction, the president made his case against the Third Reich. As though that's hard to do. <laughs> he, he said, uh, quote, In the year 1933, there came to power in Germany a political clique which did not accept the declarations of the American Bill of Human Rights as valid, a small clique of ambitious and unscrupulous politicians who announced and admitted platform was precisely the destruction of the rights that that instrument declared. Indeed, Roosevelt went on to say the entire program and goal of these political and moral tigers was nothing more than the overthrow throughout the earth of the great revolution of human liberty of which our American Bill of Rights is the mother charter. Now, Roosevelt then offered a dark assessment of what life without the Bill of Rights would look like under Hitler. He said, quote, The individual of the human being has no right to a soul of his own, or a mind of his own, or a tongue of his own, a trade of his own, or even to live where he pleases, or to marry the woman he loves. Instead, his only duty is the duty of obedience, not to his God, not to his conscience, but only to Adolf Hitler. And that his only value is his value. That is, man, their only value is Hitler's value. Not as men, but as a single unit of the Nazi state. He then went on to issue a bill of indictments of the Third Reich. He said to Hitler, the ideal of the people as we conceive it, the free, self-governing, and responsible people is incomprehensible. To Hitler, the government as we conceive it is an impossible conception. To Hitler, the church as we conceive it is a monstrosity to be dis destroyed by every means at his command. And to Hitler, the freedom of men to think as they please and speak as they please and worship as they please is of all things imaginable, most hateful, and most desperately to be feared. What we face, FDR said, is nothing more or less than an attempt to overthrow and to cancel the great use uh, upsurge of human liberty, which the American Bill of Rights is the fundamental document. We will not, he very defiantly concludes, under any threat or in the face of any danger, surrender the guarantees of liberty our forefathers framed for us in our Bill of Rights. Needless to say, extraordinary federal control over the economy, including rationing, was required to defend these liberties, and the Bill of Rights lent crucial symbolic support to those efforts. All right, next we are moving on to a second Bill of Rights. Now, the final significant speech 
in which President Roosevelt used the Bill of Rights to kindle support for sweeping government power was in, was in his 1944 State of the Union Address, which proposed a second Bill of Rights. FDR began this part of his address by stating that this republic had its beginning and grew to its present strength under the protection of certain inalienable political rights, among them the right of free speech, free press, free worship, trial by jury, freedom from unreasonable search and seizure. As our industrial economy expanded, he said these political rights proved inadequate to ensure us equality in the pursuit of happiness. We have come to a clear realization of the fact that our true individual freedom cannot exist without economic security and independence. Necessitative men uh, are not free men, he said. People who are made hungry and out of a job are the stuff of which dictatorships are made. Which kind of makes me wonder why during the Great Depression, uh, Roosevelt and his Agricultural uh, Adjustment Act paid farmers not to grow food. But I guess that's a gripe for another day. Once again, one, one dictator at a time, I guess. Uh, once again, the president was drawing a connection between federal inaction and the rise of tyranny for, without, he said, this economic bill of rights, we risk returning to the so-called normalcy of the 1920s. And that would mean that though we shall have conquered our enemies on the battlefield abroad, we shall have yielded to the spirit of fascism here at home. And after explaining that we have accepted, though to speak, a second bill of rights under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station of race or creed. The president listed several positive rights uh, that should be secured through a new bit of federal legislation, and these included, uh, first, the right to a useful and remunerative job, second, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation, three, the right of every family to a decent home, four, the right to adequate medical care, and five, the right to a good education. Now, in his campaign for a fourth term that October, the president told a rally that, quote, our economic bill of rights, like the sacred bill of rights of our constitution itself, must be applied to all citizens, end quote. Now, such an ambitious agenda would not be achieved in FDR's lifetime, and the only concrete step taken prior to his death was the enactment of benefits for returning veterans, uh, which soon earned an appropriate nickname, which is the GI Bill of Rights. Now, this act of Congress was really a, uh, whatever you think of him, was a brilliant marriage of the president's use of the symbolism of the Bill of Rights to further uh, bring, to bring greater, further federal action towards his belief in economic justice and national defense and capped the march of the 1791 amendments from uh, obscurity to fame. At the same time, the GI Bill of Rights illustrated the importance of global events on the growth of this core element of the Constitution. All right, and we are moving on to the fourth and, I believe, final section 
uh, of this uh, series. We are talking about the Bill of Rights as it relates to judicial review. Now, this part assesses how the Bill of Rights became a slogan for judicial review. Our starting point here is actually in the 1912 presidential campaign when Republicans supported President Taft against Theodore Roosevelt for the party's nomination and turned the bill turned to the Bill of Rights to discredit TR's plan for recalling state judicial decisions. And following the collapse of the court's traditional jurisprudence in 1937, the Bill of Rights gave the justices a lifeline to resurrect their authority, and Justice Robert H. Jackson responded with his what is considered a fairly eloquent opinion in the case of West Virginia State Board of Education v. Barnett, which is canonical in part because it stressed the connection between the Bill of Rights and judicial review. And when the court was presented with the tricky issues of whether married couples could be barred from using contraceptives, Griswold versus Connecticut used a holistic reading of the Bill of Rights to find a constitutional right to privacy. Now let's talk about Teddy Roosevelt, the Rough Rider. Now, Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt needed a powerful issue to defeat a sitting president for his party's nomination. And his gambit was to call for giving voters the authority to recall decisions by state courts. And in a speech to Ohio's Constitutional Convention in 1912, Roosevelt contended, When a judge decides a constitutional question, when he decides what the people as a whole can and cannot do, the people should have the right to recall that decision if they think it is wrong. We should hold the judiciary in all respect, but it is both absurd and degrading to make a fetish of a judge. Now, Roosevelt singled out a case in New York, uh, striking down the state workers' compensation statute on due process grounds as being flagrant in its defiance of rights and justice and short-sighted in its ability to face the, challenge, or the changing needs of our civilization. And the party establishment rejected Roosevelt and his recall proposal and framed its opposition as a support for the Bill of Rights. Now, New York's Rep Republican Convention, which supported uh, the then-President uh, Taft, issued a resolution that stated, we believe, that the guarantees of the Bill of Rights as incorporated in the Constitution of the United States for the protection of each citizen, even if threatened by a temporary majority, shall be forever preserved. Now, Eli Root delivered the keynote address at the Republican National Convention and said that the recall of judicial decisions was dangerous because, quote, the prohibitions of the Bill of Rights which protect liberty and ensure justice cannot be enforced except through the determination of an independent and courageous judiciary, end quote. And when a bitterly divided convention ended up choosing Taft as a standard bearer, the president issued a statement to the New York Times arguing that the result of uh, the defeat 
for Roosevelt was for those who wanted to weaken the constitutional guarantees of life, liberty, and property, and all other rights declared sacred in the Bill of Rights by abandoning the principles of absolute independence of the judiciary essential to the maintenance of those rights. Now, a little reflection, however, reveals a flaw in these arguments that, again, illustrates the role of the Bill of Rights as a symbol, though this time in support of judicial view, rather than of federal action. And in 1912, only two sections of the initial set of amendments, which are the Takings Clause and the Due Process Clause, had been applied to the states. And since Roosevelt's plan involved the recall of only state judgments, how could this threaten the Bill of Rights? Now, perhaps President Taft and his supporters meant that the state constitutions protected many rights listed in the first set of amendments and were using the Bill of Rights to represent that idea. I think a more realistic observation, though, is that the decision that Teddy Roosevelt wanted recalled rested on the liberty of contract as it was interpreted uh, in the seminal anti-canonical case of Lochner v. New York. That is another topic I have made a video on. I really like my Lochner video as well. I will be putting a link to it in a little card up in the corner right about now. And if you want to go watch it later, I'll be putting a link to it in the description. Now, this controversial doctrine was uh, simply easier to defend when it was characterized as being about the Bill of Rights. Consequently, the first use of the Bill of Rights to support judicial authority came, ironically enough, in a partisan fight within one of the two political parties. Now we're going to discuss the road to Barnett. While the Bill of Rights was in this instance a handy tool for defending Lochner when the liberty of contract disintegrated in 1937, that text played a more prominent role in restoring confidence in judicial review. Consider anew a familiar authority. Footnote 4 of the United States v. Carolyn Product Co. Now, for those of you uh, who haven't been to law school, uh, what this is is this is just a footnote to a, well, I mean, what became a very important case, but was just sort of seemingly a random case known as Caroline Product Co. And footnote four is the most famous footnote in the whole, certainly of American constitutional law and maybe American law in general. So uh, anyone, anyone who has uh, even so much as taken a, uh, you know, 1L con law class will be able to tell you exactly what footnote 4 is right off the top. This is a very big deal. Because what this did was suggest a new defense of judicial scrutiny that opened up with this thought. There may be narrower scope for operation of the presumption of constitutionality when legislation appears on its face to be within a specific prohibition of the Constitution such as those of the first ten amendments. And in this quote, the court recognized that the 1791 amendments were a potential resource, but tellingly, they did not call that list a Bill of Rights. At this point, the Bill of Rights was still seen as more 
majoritarian in aiding the extension of federal authority than a counter-majoritarian measure. And another irony in the history of the Bill of Rights is that its surge within the court began with an, appeal, with an opinion from Felix Frankfurter, who is not seen by any means as a civil libertarian, partly due to his dissent in the case Barnett. And the first substantial site to the Bill of Rights was in 1940. And this was only the second one since the 1920s. Uh, and this was uh, the case of Minersville School District versus Gavitis, which upheld a mandatory flag salute for kids in public schools. In Gavitis, Justice Frankfurter wrote, quote, Centuries of strife over the erection of particular dogmas as exclusive or all-comprehending faith led to the inclusion of a guarantee for religious freedom in the Bill of Rights. He also went on to say that uh, in the case of Pierce versus the Society of Sisters that held that the Bill of Rights bars a state from compelling all children to attend the public schools, even though Pierce said nothing about the Bill of Rights. Nonetheless, the court concluded that the judicial nullification of the legislation cannot be justified by attributing it to the framers of the Bill of Rights views for which there is no historical warrant. Now, while the outcome of Gobitis is contrary to the modern reading of the First Amendment, Justice Frankfurter's dicta marked an important step in the rise of the Bill of Rights. Really, in a sense, the decision sits in somewhat of an analogous position to one of the most deplorable uh, anti-canonical cases in the whole of constitutional law, and that is Korematsu v. United States, which upheld an act of racial discrimination but included dicta that ended up helping those who later sought to invalidate discrimination. And if you're not familiar, Korematsu was the case where uh, the Supreme Court saw that we were rounding up Japanese people, or even sometimes just Asian people in general, because they look Japanese, and that's still kind of scary. And there was a challenge brought that, hey, this is fucked up, and we shouldn't be locking these people up without warrant or cause. Uh, and Korematsu was the case where the Supreme Court went, eh, whatever. Pretty much, to sum it up. Next, the fixed star in our constitutional constellation. The decision on the Bill of Rights that everyone reveres is the one that reversed Gobitis. Now, there are many compelling aspects of Barnetti, but the most important for my purposes is that the opinion converted the Bill of Rights into a justification for judicial review, stating that the very purpose of a Bill of Rights was to withdraw certain subjects from the vicissitudes of public controversy to place them beyond the reach of majorities and officials and to establish them as legal principles to be applied by the courts. Now, the courts went on to say, one's right to life, liberty, and property, to free speech, a free press, freedom of worship and assembly, and all other fundamental rights may not be submitted to vote. They depend on the outcome of no election. And Barnetti's rhetoric is so strong that lawyers no longer recognize 
that a Bill of Rights meant something very different for most of our history. There was a hint that there were other purposes for a Bill of Rights, uh, for example, in Justice Jackson's statement in the case that uh, we must transplant these rights to a soil in which they lays a fair uh, concept or principle of non-interference has withered, at least as to economic affairs and social advancements are increasingly sought, though closer integration of society and through expanded and strengthened government controls. Now, the missing element of this analysis was that the Bill of Rights played a vital role in validating expanded and strengthened government control. Though that obviously would have undercut the point the court was trying to make. Now, Barnetti also did its part for the war effort by pitting the Bill of Rights against the Nazis and serving as the judicial complement to Franklin Roosevelt's Bill of Rights Day address. And in this case, the court directly attacked the Fuhrer, noting that the Boy Scouts and the Red Cross objected to the ways in which the flag was saluted then with an outstretched arm being too much like that of Hitler. Barnetti also referred to the fast-failing efforts of our present totalitarian enemies to stamp out dissent and conjure the dark images of the concentration camps by stating that those who begin coercive elimination of dissent soon find themselves exterminating dissenters. Now, something of the punchline of this section of the opinion was when they said, quote, we set up a government by consent of the governed and the Bill of Rights denies those in power an illegal opportunity to coerce that consent, end quote. And after World War II, Barnetti's description of the Bill of Rights and Judicial Review supplanted the use of that term to legitimate uh, federal power, and Justice Jackson's quote is periodically wheeled out to buttress difficult holdings striking down state laws. And the first appearance of this quote came from the school district of uh, Abington Township versus Shemp, which held that a public school could not begin the day with readings from the Bible. At the conclusion of Shemp, the court quoted Jackson's line on a Bill of Rights and said that the quote refuted the claim that a majority could use the machinery of state to practice its religious beliefs. Two decades later, when it invalidated abortion restrictions enacted by Pennsylvania, the court ended its opinion by citing the same dicta to support that certain values are more important than the will of a transient majority. And then in Obergefell v. Hodges, uh, the court quoted most of Jackson's language as representing the idea of the Constitution and using it in support of the right of same-sex marriage. And the right to privacy. When Griswold 
came before the court in 1965, the justices again turned to the Bill of Rights to buttress their decision. But this time, the court read the first set of amendments in a more comprehensive way. Justice William O. Douglas's opinion said that the unwritten right to privacy was justified because, quote, specific guarantees in the Bills of Rights have penumbras, force formed by emanations from those guarantees to help give them life and substance, end quote. The court then cited the First, Third, Fourth, Fifth, and Ninth Amendment as establishing zones of privacy and observed that the enforcement of a ban on contraceptives would require significant intrusion into those zones. And as Justice uh, Douglas explained more succinctly in his dissent in the case of Poe v. Allman, can there be any doubt that a Bill of Rights in a time of peace bars soldiers from being quartered in a home without the consent of the owner should also bar the police from investigating the intimacies of the marriage relation. Now, while the court's discussion of emanations and penumbras is very easy to lampoon, Griswold is the only case the Supreme Court opinion actually treats the Bill of Rights as a coherent text. Still, the effort was more symbolic than real. Much of the Bill of Rights is unrelated to privacy, and a fair observer would be very hard-pressed to argue that privacy is the most important thing of those first sets of amendments. Note, however, how different Griswold's interpretive approach was from the one taken in the cases dealing with the liberty of contract. For example, Lochner could have ticked off an equally impressive list of clauses in the Second, Third, Fourth, Fifth, and Ninth Amendments that protected property rights and then claimed that these zones supported a constitutional liberty of contract. Part of the reason this did not happen is that when cases such as Lochner were decided, the idea that the, that the Bill of Rights was a Bill of Rights was not self-evident, and there was no sense, uh, at least until 1912, that the Bill of Rights had some kind of important meaning for the exercise of judicial review. Now, Griswold came along after the court had adopted the Bill of Rights as its mascot, and Griswold's other innovation with respect to the Bill of Rights was in its assertion that marriage involved, quote, the right of privacy older than the Bill of Rights, end quote, which implied that rights predate the 1791 amendments uh, must be exceptionally important because people recognized them even earlier. Though this language is quoted only in cases that are about marriage, Justice Kennedy has embraced its theme in more than one opinion to explain why clauses in the 1787 Constitution deserve rigorous enforcement. For, for instance, uh, in the case, of, the case of Bodamine versus Bush, he wrote for the court that its analysis must begin with two propositions. First, protection of the privilege of habeas corpus. 
was one of the few safeguards of liberty specified in the Constitution that, at the outset, had no Bill of Rights. And in the system that was conceived by the framers, the writ had a centrality that must inform proper interpretation of the suspension clause. And likewise, in his concurring opinion in the decision uh, invalidating the Line Item Veto Act, uh, Justice Kennedy explained that the framers were so convinced that the liberty of the persons uh, inherent in the structure that, at first, they did not even consider a Bill of Rights necessary. In effect, the Bill of Rights was used to cast a retrospective glow on what the framers proposed, which is the tail wagging the dog from a historical perspective. And in sum, the justices invoked the Bill of Rights in many forms to discharge their constitutional duties. The first set of amendments for so long were an illegal afterthought, and what Justice Portis called in 1968 the Great Bill of Rights in our Constitution. And now we draw our conclusions. On Bill of Rights Day in 1952, the President, Chief Justice, and many other dignitaries gathered at the National Archives for a special ceremony. The original Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were being put on display in a new shrine that was meant to preserve these relics for all time. Joining them was one of the original copies of the Bill of Rights. And in his dedication, remarked by President Truman, he stated that he was glad that the Bill of Rights is at last to be exhibited side by side with the Constitution. He went on to say that, in my opinion, the Bill of Rights is the most important part of our Constitution. And this was the case because uh, it is, according to him, the only document in the world that protects the citizens against his government. Now, the Bill of Rights was now assuming a new role uh, as a pillar of American democracy during the Cold War as Truman went on to discuss how we should respond to the global, what he called the global threat of totalitarianism and communism. Now, what those in attendance did not know, or maybe uh, conveniently chose to forget, was that the Bill of Rights under Glass was not even a Bill of Rights to the founders and was not principally about protecting citizens from their government. This really wasn't a thing until well into the 20th century. And an essential aspect of a canonical text is its susceptibility to many interpretations that allow different schools of thought to embrace at least one of its meanings. The Bill of Rights possesses the requisite ambiguity because nothing in the text defines the terms and because the first set of amendments can easily be understood as representing broad concepts such as the rule of law, judicial review, uh, fundamental right, or the constitutional right of privacy. At that level of generality, the Bill of Rights can act as a balm to those troubled by extensions 
of federal authority, as was the case with the incorporation, imperialism, New Deal, and World War II. And Americans tend to really sort of lavish on the Bill of Rights. Uh, and flexible as the phrase is, I think people still understood the text as a product of the 18th century. Franklin Roosevelt sought not only to supplement the Bill of Rights with a second one granting positive rights, he did not attempt to redefine the Bill of Rights to include those freedoms. As a result, many of the great constitutional achievements of the past two centuries, especially the Reconstruction Amendments, are somewhat excluded from that special club that are not given a place of honor in the National Archives. There are several obsolete parts of the Constitution that cannot be removed without a formal Article 5 amendment, but we are free to enlarge the scope and purpose of the Bill of Rights to reflect our contemporary values. Well, that is going to do it for me here today. Uh, and before I go, I wanted to thank uh, Blue North Wind for reminding me uh, to uh, do this episode. Uh, she was kind enough a, a month or two to go to mention how much she really loved my, my first Bill of Rights episode. Uh, and that got me to realizing I had not done the second one that had been ready for like six months. So I wanted to uh, just thank her. She's a long time, I, I guess, subscriber, follower, friend, uh, kind of all of the above. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'm really glad I got this done because I, as I said in the beginning, like, uh, you know, I'm trying to be modest here, but I think this is really one of the best videos I have ever done. I, I, I mean, if not because of my work on it, at least because the information, uh, and the narrative and sort of the arc of the history of our constitutional development is by itself fascinating, and I hope that maybe I have brought a little bit of extra insight to it that wasn't already there. So, if you like the video, go ahead and uh, hit that thumbs up button. If you dislike the video, hit the thumbs down button. I don't really care. Uh, if you have any thoughts at all, please leave them in the comment section below. I always love to hear from people and get their thoughts uh, on my content. And in the meantime, I guess all that is left to say is that this has been Lockie and Liberal for Categorical Imperatives, talking about the Bill of Rights as a term of art. And of course, as always, de lenda es Carthago. <laughs>